Episode 22. I'm Casey Mitchum. And I'm Burton Cody. And today we're breaking all protocols because we're talking about the Robocop remake. Well, uh, if you are unfamiliar and if you haven't been listening to this show at all, this is the last part of our Robocop retrospective. I don't typically give spoiler warnings on this show because most of the movies we cover are, are old enough that I feel like the statute of limitations on spoilers has passed. But since this is still in theaters, I'm going to go ahead and issue a warning to anybody listening that we're going to delve into pretty spoilery territory here. Mm-hmm. Here on out. Uh, for the way we like to, you know, crack into a movie, uh, the way we like to discuss it, we can't avoid spoilers oftentimes. We apologize. Yeah. Well. But hey, if you don't mind, stick around. Yeah, stick around. So, in case you are unfamiliar, this RoboCop has the essentially same skeleton to the remake. I mean, to the original. Yeah. Uh, Cop gets mortally wounded. Mm -hmm. He gets repurposed and rebuilt as RoboCop. Yes. In Detroit. Uh, In in Detroit in the year 2028. So, we're in Neo-Detroit here. Yeah. Well, this is the first time we've had a particular date set for RoboCop. Because the other movies... It was indeterminate. Yeah. So I actually like that a little better. And this is a completely different movie. It is. I, and I, I think that's for uh, the movie's benefit. Absolutely. I'm so glad uh, that any sort of like references to the original are kept to a bare minimum. Yeah, there, there's a couple lines. Uh, we see the ED-209 units. Uh, but lo- and, you know, OCP is still a factor. The... the uh, big global conglomerate Mm -hmm. but uh this is a very different movie yeah different in tone different in scale and you know i'm gonna go ahead and lead off with this i mean when the first robocop movie came out in the 80s this sort of cyberpunk uh police state dystopia was sort of science fiction uh in 2014 it feels more like science fact. I mean, we live in the universe that most cyberpunk stories are set in, barring, you know, complete cybernetic technology. Yeah, kind of like, you know, I'd just say it's cyber eventuality. You know, yeah. this is coming 20, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now. And, right. uh, and they're satirizing different things. I mean, the the opening sequence really is the most thinly veiled of um, satire or criticism of uh, drone strikes. Uh, I think it's the best sequence in the movie. It's it's a strong one. It's a really strong one. I mean, they, you know, we're it shows us uh, the Middle East, but also we get to meet uh, Samuel Jackson's character, who is uh, referred to as Pat uh, Novak. Pat Novak and Pat Novak is, you know, an, a clear satire on our uh, modern form of uh, news punditry. You know, he's this, he is this deeply uh, conservative talking head that seems to despise uh, other, you know, the, the, the um, what does he refer to it as? Oh, I don't remember. I, I just know he, he's, he doesn't care for uh, uh, patriotic dissension. 
Exactly. Well, and he and he doesn't care for other forms of media. That's what I was trying to get at. Like he okay. he's always accusing other forms of media of trying to keep the American people in the dark. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't give equal time to his guests if they say things he disagrees with. Yeah, yeah. The movie opens up with him doing like a little bit of a, a TV sort of warm up, and then he gets on his program. Uh, is it like the Novak Element? Is that the name of it? Uh, and then he takes us live to Tehran, Iran, which we've apparently invaded. Mm-hmm. And well, it, no, no. In his words, it's it's we've made safer. Yeah, we've made safer. Yeah, exactly. It's pacification. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a pretty venomous take on American foreign policy. This movie is also directed by a foreigner making his first American film. In this case, it's Jose Padilla. Who is Brazilian in descent. Yeah, Brazilian. Um, he's known for the Elite Squad uh, movies. And he actually was kind of a very appropriate choice to do any sort of like police drama or police corruption story. Because those are absolutely what those two films are about. Um, I, I haven't seen those, but I'm keen to after this. Yeah, uh, the second one I think is on Netflix. Alright, uh, I'll have to give that a try. Elite Squad 2. Anyhow, uh, the scene... The opening scene is really great because it does set the tone. It sets the world we live in, and it's a camera woman or a, a reporterette, and she looks a lot like one of those interchangeable like Fox News women. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's being taken around with Jackie Earl Haley and his robot core dimension. There's these androids, and then there's the Ed 209 units. The, uh, the familiar uh, bipedal tanks that we know from the original. Yeah. Uh, as a friend of mine pointed out, it has a distinct uh, Metal Gear Solid 4 vibe to it. Oh, my goodness, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I felt that very... I'm only just now playing Metal Gear Solid 4, and I can I can see uh, the similarities to the Gecko uh, units patrolling the streets of the Middle East. Although, you know, in a way, I feel like the Geckos, as they also make animal noises, are a direct Ed 209 reference. So yeah, I, it, it comes back around in a huge circle. Yeah, there. I'm pretty sure Koejima said he enjoy, he's a RoboCop fan, among other things. Um, we see how like the Ed 209 units operate and what our version of like pacification safety is. These were really sinister-looking like uh, robots that are kind of in human form or human shape, I should say, or analyzing who's a threat, who's not a threat, even like, they, like a child. Well, and it's it's indirect. Uh, it's a direct visual counter to the narrative that Pat Novak is creating in his newscast. I mean, he's talking about how the people in Tehran love this and feel secure and safe, but all, but all we're shown are images of people in Tehran coming out of their homes and being compulsively scanned by every robot that passes by and having to hold their hands up to show that they're not, you know, that they're a non-threat. Yeah. yeah, we also see how a uh Someone revolts against that, and there's a group of guys with bombs strapped to themselves with uh, carrying rifles, and they attack the Ed 209 units, but they get massacred. There's even yeah, there's even an I, actual, like, drone. Which, you know, again, I don't feel like we're supposed to view these men, these suicide bombers, as generic terrorists. We're supposed to view these men as people that are trying to get the message out about their contempt for what uh, is being imposed upon them because they make it very clear that they want to die on camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they even say that. And finally, a, bo- uh, a pretty young kid gets just blown apart uh, by one of the Ed 209 units just because he's holding a knife. 
in defiance of his father dying very uh, shortly before. Yeah. So the robots, it, it shows us that the, the Ed 209 units and the androids can't differentiate what's a big, you know, what's a severe threat or what's like, you know, not really a threat. I mean, it's, a, it's an Ed 209. And these yeah. Ed 209 units are a bit more capable. Mm-hmm. The ones we saw in the old movie are, I, I think a lot of the humor is that they don't work very well. Yeah, they are, they are completely uh, disabled by stairs. The s- stairs, and they have like a big uh, open port right in the middle. Mm-hmm. It's like a big target. It's like the the Z on a putty from Power Rangers. You just hit yeah. that and you win. Whereas these uh these tend to you know amass in great numbers and look more heavily armored. Yeah, they even uh, like a one of the guys detonates his uh, bomb vest. And it doesn't really do much to the Ed 209 unit. Like they're pretty heavily armored. Yeah, they're they're armored. You know, they're walking tanks. You know. Yes, and I and you feel that a lot more here than I you do in the original. I think. Yeah, but but like I said, I think that was part of the humor. Of oh the yeah, one. no. Well, and also I I think that you know again technical limitations, yeah. uh, which which is something that we're going to talk a lot about. You know. There is a significant difference in what we're capable of now uh, than we were then in special effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, most of the effects in this movie are digital. Um, a lot to the a lot to the to the benefit. Yeah, for the most part, um, this is a PG thirteen movie. And much to Padilla's and the star who plays um, Alex Murphy, we haven't even really gotten to him yet. Uh, Robocop. Yeah. They both wanted an R rated picture. They they lobbied for it very hard, and I know that's I, I, we need to make that clear because I know that there are a lot of people there out there that go a PG thirteen RoboCop. What are they thinking? Yeah. And what they're thinking is that this movie cost way more to make than the the production company necessarily wanted it to. Um, and after it started pushing that you know hundred million, hundred and twenty million budget mark, they decided to make it a PG thirteen movie because they wanted to recoup their losses. Yeah. Um, and they get around a few things quite well, and a few things not so well. Yeah, I feel like this is PG-13 in the same way that The Dark Knight is PG-13. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of bloodless, but pretty extreme mayhem going on. They get away with a lot. Yeah. Um, anyhow, we, we are introduced to Alex Murphy, who's like, uh, he also, he works as like an undercover narc, it looks like. Yeah. Um, he and his partner, who Lewis, played by Michael Kenneth Williams. Many of you know from The Wire or, yeah, or Boardwalk he's a, he's Empire. A Omar on The Wire. Yeah, or Chalky White from Boardwalk. I yeah. uh, love the guy. Um, it's cool to see him here. And but you know, I I think again that's uh, we're telling a different story here. Whereas I don't think he there's still a there's a deeper relationship in this movie with the family than there was in the original. Uh, as they're still, you know, physical presences in the film. Um, so I, I, th- I think maybe that's probably why they opted to go with a male uh, partner. Yeah, even the nature of which Murphy becomes RoboCop is much less extreme. <laughs> because it's uh, shown that Murphy is... Well, it's in the trailer. Yeah. There's a car bomb that goes off, blows him up. And we see him in the hospital. He's definitely still alive. It's not like the original where he's literally blown to pieces. And but uh, I think the car bombing works given uh, the the increased focus in this movie on police corruption as well as corporate corruption. Yeah, it's just a completely different take. You know, yeah. it, it really is. And 
the way well we'll get to it in a way in a in a little bit so, something I really did like their way to get around the extremely violent death of Murphy in the original definitely and it, it's a way that that is quite disturbing and very successfully so it's also yeah. one of my favorite scenes in the movie but we do see that there's a very good-natured prosthetic doctor who makes very advanced cybernetic uh, components for amputees, war veterans, whatever. Um, uh, yeah, like, yeah I, I was actually really impressed with that initial scene. Uh, uh, we're talking, of course, about Dr. Norton, played by Gary Oldman. And God, let me say, Oldman is such a chameleon that I did not, re- even knowing he was somewhere in this movie, I did not realize it was him for like the first half of this film. Because, because I was watching his performance in this movie and I thought, this guy's good, who is he? <laughs> Drexel Spivey, Dracula, <laughs> Beethoven, Commissioner Gordon, yeah. Sid Vicious. Yeah, Sid Vicious, yeah, the one that made him kind of a star, I guess. The man can do anything. But I, I really enjoy this init- the initial sequence with Dr. Norton as he's uh, trying to assist a man who just got cybernetic arms um, to re- relearn the skills to how to play guitar, convincing him that, you know... That, the fingers were never what made you play guitar so well. It was it was all in your brain. It was all you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that's kind of a touching sequence just to show like it, it really establishes for the viewer and for me that Norton is not uh, the soulless face of this corporation, even if he's funded by them. He's not in it for the money. He really wants to help people. Um, and that leads, I think, the hand sequence among something else leads to. Uh, the design we get for RoboCop, and which bothered a lot of people initially, myself included, but it grew on me. It's that RoboCop keeps his right human hand. It's organic. It's flesh. Yes. In fact, I wasn't entirely convinced that it wasn't like another, like a cadaver's hand that was mm-hmm. like in better condition because he looked pretty badly burnt from that car explosion. He did, but I, I thought that was a nice touch to give him that, like that one organic element. Well. It, it makes sense in the long run because if you're firing a weapon, it's like a certain like human sensitivity that you're going to need to be accurate with a, a weapon, a gun. In this case, he gets like a high-powered taser in one hand, and he also has like a, a submachine gun for his robotic hand, his murder hand, I'll call that. Well, um... Let's talk about the uh, the arrival because you know he arrives very shortly after uh, Doctor Norton. We have Raymond Sellers, the the owner of Omnicore, who is the corporation that funds all this, and it's he's played by uh, Michael Keaton. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like a Steve Jobs sort of guy. Yeah, he's very much in line with the uh, the ruthless corporate heads in all of the previous films. Yeah. He's actually kind of likable at first, and what he wants to do is to have his robots across cities all over America. America's the last market for him to really strike it big. Yeah, um, what, what the uh, initial narrative uh, from, the initial newscast, rather, sets up for us is that America is the only nation in the world that hasn't consented to allowing robots to uh be their crime pacifiers mm-hmm. uh but but we are the supplier of all the robots and this is being blocked in congress by politicians and by a uh, public consensus i think they give it as high as 78 percent of uh um, the american people don't don't want robots to uh patrol our streets because we are concerned about how heartless they'd be or that the fact that they wouldn't feel if they pulled the trigger on a child 
which is a uh, you know which of course is a is a big part of the story in the original RoboCop movie. But I think this takes it. I think this this takes that concept to far greater heights. I think it. I think the the exploration of that idea is more important here than it was in any of the previous films. I don't really feel like maybe they don't explore it a whole lot, but. I feel like it's just the impetus, like it's just their way to work RoboCop into the story. Sure, but I, but I th- I think the I don't know I just just like the original though, because that's yeah. how Morton in the original goes. Well, would you like to hear about the RoboCop program? Well, what what I mean by that is that I think that there's a there's a there's a bigger focus on how RoboCop is testing and how people are like and and getting and getting him to appeal to people and changing aspects of him. Like they don't they don't want any kind of cyborg. They want a they want a human story that people can rally behind. And we and you know and during the scenes we have uh, Sellers and his marketing team discussing. Uh, demographic shifts, like oh, this is how prisoners see him, and this is how children see him, and um, you know, people complained uh, in a lot of the uh, internet outlets that I've seen about the black suit. I didn't like it either. I really didn't. But I, you know, but I accept, I accept the film's version of it that this is like Sellers' idea to make him yeah. look more tactical. I was know, wondering more... if that was more meta humor. I think it was. Yeah. I think it was. Um, but you know, we do get the classic Silver RoboCop too. Yeah, I actually really, really like the silver updated version of RoboCop in this movie. I think it looks great. Yeah, you know, even with that human hand. We get we get two variants of the silver one too in the beginning and end of the movie. That uh, mm-hmm. so so don't worry, uh, RoboCop purists. If you don't like the black costume, you still get uh quite a few cameos from the original suit. Yeah. Uh, he reminds me a lot of we're talking about Metal Gear Solid. He looks like one of the cyborg ninjas. Mm-hmm. From Metal Gear Solid, a lot to me. Or um, Raiden uh, after Metal Gear Four. Yeah, I, I don't think that's a an accident either. No, somebody's a fan. Again, the I, I feel like this is a, I feel like these two are just a big circle of references to one another at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah, the circle is complete. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like I mentioned earlier, to give the audience, I think a great. Uh, kind of emotional pull into RoboCop's, you know, problem, you know, his life that he's facing, is that there's a scene where the the, sci- the uh, Gary Oldman scientist shows uh, Murphy just exactly what's left of his body. Oh, I think this is a fantastic sequence. Yeah, it's, uh, it was actually quite gruesome. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, you know, they are kind of skating the edge here because... His RoboCop body is just sort of disassembled right in front of uh, Murphy, in, but in front of a mirror, and all we see are his lungs breathing. Mm-hmm. We see like his trachea, I think, and his brain, yeah, and his flesh hand is by itself. It's just dangling. Yeah. The, the rest of him are these see-through tubings that just have a single vein running through them that pump blood into his circulatory system. Yeah. Uh, there's. So it's it's pretty shocking. I mean, when we say that you're seeing these organs, that we're seeing them through these see-through tanks that are barely holding these things together, and they're only showing us this because Murphy refuses to believe that he's no longer human because he can feel. Uh, and they, you know, of course, they assure him, "Well, you're an amputee. That those are phantom pains. Of course, you're going to feel the rest of yourself." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he was asking, to, he was demanding to have his uh, body take or his suit taken off. He's like, mm-hmm. "You can't take it off, Alex." I I I was really into this sequence. Yeah. I, and it lasts a long time. 
It does. Oh, they they have a full conversation where you're watching his vocal folds moving during close-ups. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know. I was kind of amazed by this. I think I think those that's one of those sequences that would have been impossible given uh, previous special effects technology. Um, I also think in this movie, whereas in the previous RoboCop films, there was always the question of RoboCop's humanity and how we knew that it was in him. I feel like this movie wanted to differentiate itself by suggesting that the human consciousness in Murphy was is like, it's always at the forefront. Um, it's actually kind of reverse engineered from the original. Yeah, like it's we we see him as a holy human consciousness that uh, Omnicore is attempting to suppress. Mm-hmm. Like they they want him more robotic, and so they you know they 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 force the doctor to do uh, dopamine suppression and stuff on him to make yeah. him more make him more uh, machine like but just human enough that nobody asks questions. Yeah, uh, whereas in the original he's just a straight up robot. Nobody knows that he's Alex Murphy. Yeah, Alex Murphy to everybody else was just completely obliterated months ago, maybe a year ago. Here, it's like a big story. It's almost like, um, you know, when you see those videos of uh, war veterans and they have like severe uh, neur- uh, neural damage or they're amputees or something. It's horrible. And it's great to see when they sort of rise up from, you know, those that, that adversity. And I think yeah. that's what this movie's playing on mm-hmm. is that sort of sentimenta- sentimentality. Yeah, uh, and well, I like I... that a lot. I think this movie, you know, in the same way that RoboCop, you know, one draws from the 80s, I think this is definitely a movie of its time. Yeah, absolutely. Also, with the human hand, this is what I wanted to say, was that in the original movie, the very first thing Murphy loses is his right hand. In this movie, the only thing other than, you know, the main RoboCop stuff he keeps is his right hand. Yeah. So I think that was also the director going, see, I am making a totally different movie. He's even said in interviews that he is a huge fan of the original, and he has abs- he had no intention of just treading over the same water again. It's like, I'm just getting the skeleton, and I'm running with it. Well, you know, I, I think that it's almost to the film's detriment that it's called RoboCop. Yeah. I I, I think this is a this is a pretty great little action movie about, you know, transhumanism and a cyborg, you know, trying to adapt to modern culture and, uh, and a lot of our, you know, a lot of our modern day concerns. And, you know, I think it works really well on its own, but I don't think it could have been greenlit if it wasn't called RoboCop. But being called RoboCop is the same thing that's going to keep a lot of people from wanting to see it. And in some ways it might affect, like, your opinion of it. Like, well, the original did this better. It's like, well, original... Maybe, you know, I think the original has a much sharper, more twisted wit that I enjoy better. It's got way more memorable dialogue. I much prefer the action scenes in the original. Um, But there's things here for this movie to stand, you know, on its own. And I think, you know, years from now, people will come back to this movie. They could have called it Cyborg Police Officer. (laughs) They could have called it anything else. Yeah, they could have called it, like, Glorious Masamune Shiro (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. Something, you know. Something well, let's, else. let's talk about that, actually. You, you bring up Masamune Shiro, uh, or, you know, or, or even Mamoru Oshii, uh, who, you know, yeah. uh, uh, most of our listeners are not anime fans, but they are the creators of uh, Ghost in the Shell, um, which I know is a big favorite of yours. It is. <laughs> um, 
but I, I feel like, you know, this movie is kind of the natural extension of the ghost in the shell idea of police work because I mean we have a pretty substantially upgraded Robocop here. Um Yeah, he can run and jump. Yeah, which which again has a lot to do with them not uh having Robocop necessarily only be a uh a clunky full body suit that the actor can barely move in, as was the problem with Robocop three. Uh, a much bigger problem. I, I like a little better that the original Robocop is like a walking tank of death. You can't like stop him. You can't really knock him over. He's just going to keep coming and busting through walls. Here he's like sleek. He's like he's a cyborg ninja more. Just a yeah. completely different approach. Again, I, for, for the Metal Gear purists, he pretty much moves like Raiden in Metal Gear Revengeance. <laughs> I haven't played that yet, but I really want to. Um, Oh, I forgot to bring up one of my favorite jokes in the movie. I think one of the most sly jokes Mm -hmm. was when uh, RoboCop first wakes up. Yeah. And he's like, where the heck am I? He runs out into a lab area and there's a man yelling at him in Chinese. He looks over and there's a bunch of Chinese scientists. Yes. And then he like breaks through another door and there's a bunch of people working at like those long assembly lines. If you've ever seen like pictures or documentaries of. It looks like Foxconn. Yeah, or it looks like uh, where they assemble like iPods or something. Mm-hmm. And then he bursts through the door, and it's like a rice paddy feel. Yes. It's like, and it's showing that American heroes are manufactured in China now, <laughs> just like yeah. everything else. Well, and you know, I wanted to answer your question too about about um, you know the movement style changing and him no longer being a human tank, and I feel like. You know, this this movie, in the way that a lot of action movies these days are aware of, is that this movie has to compete with video games now. Mm. You know, that like that I think that a lot of younger people have much higher expectations about the speed at which you know action sequences have to occur now. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. There's a very Call of Duty esque shootout later <laughs> in the movie, which I didn't really. I thought. If there was a bad action sequence in the movie, it would be that one. It's where all the lights are shut off, and like some bad guys are wearing like these like infrared goggles. I don't know. I, I kind of enjoyed seeing the different kinds of thermal and night vision filters applied to that sequence. I, I didn't like that it was it was cutting between that and all muzzle flashes. I didn't like that. It gave like a strobe effect. It reminded me of that terrible Public Enemies movie Michael Mann did, where all you could <laughs> see were muzzle flashes in the shootouts. Because he shot it in like really underexposed digital, it looked terrible. Um, like I spoke about with RoboCop 2, another problem I have with the action scenes in this movie is there's no like cathartic moment to them. It's just like we're talking about. It's just kind of video gamey and running through the motions. I'm not getting really excited during them. Like with well, original RoboCop, he's like, oh man, he just shot that one guy that giggles all the time. Oh man. The toxic waste man just burst into mush, you know. I'm not getting that out of it. I feel like a part of that is, though, that we don't have a villain as strong as Clarence Boddicker. Um, You know, we have Antoine, Vallon, and all these other guys, but they don't... But none of them have anything that's that... Other than Michael Keaton, Mm -hmm. none of them have anything that's that defining about them that makes me, like, really want to cheer for RoboCop getting any kind, you know, any sort of um, redemption against them. Yeah, and also the mark of a good villain, like Clarence Bodiger, is that 
he's you like he's so nasty and disgusting and he's so he says such horrible things that you really enjoy seeing him do that stuff uh this one has the guy that set the car bomb up and he's just kind of this dude with mutton chops and he looks like he's out of the 70s to me and we have uh jackie earl haley as uh the guy that I don't know, the, the, guy, the, the guy that's in charge of RoboCop's kill switch, more or less. Yeah, his name is Maddox. He's the, uh, he's the, he's the origin, he's the, uh, developer of all the purely robotic, um, squadrons. I really want to think that his name is a reference to Maddox Zero One. <laughs> uh, another anime about, uh, a robot suit. <laughs> I, you know, I believe that. I think there are a lot of references here. I mean, I know uh, Doctor Denton, um, I'm sorry, Doctor Norton rather, has the has the first name Dennett, uh, and that is a reference to um, the famous philosopher Daniel Dennett, whose uh, primary works for the last couple decades have been about consciousness and free will. Hmm. So there's a lot of you know I wouldn't be surprised if the you know there there are several references in how things are named or otherwise placed as with uh, as with many kinds of um, transhumanist narrative of and uh, transhumanism of course is the the concept that eventually we as human beings will use technology to exceed our physical bodies and uh, you know become one with uh, cybernetics much like Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> Absolutely, and, which also deals with concepts of free will and consciousness. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, there will be a an American Ghost in the Shell a few years from now. The guy that did um, Snow White and the Huntsman movies attached to direct it. I you know I don't have any interest in that yet. I don't <laughs> either. Wrong. Uh, Steven Spielberg was going to do it like five years ago. I just like what just yeah. like. Uh, James Cameron is supposedly doing a Battle Angel Alita movie that he's been working on for the last 25 years that he's not going to do now that he's doing 20 Avatar movies. I'd much rather him do Battle Angel than more Avatar, but that's for another day. And that's and unfortunately, the money is not behind our wishes. Uh, I No, I think a uh, James Cameron Battle Angel movie would be pretty cool. But... I, I want to say I really love... I, I agree with you there, by the way. Um, I want to say I really loved uh, the enhancements made to robocop i because you know in the previous one we you know we we understood that he had like a database but we get to see uh the way that the database is incorporated into our increasingly surveyed society i mean robocop is the ultimate nsa worker mm-hmm. uh, he, he can view you know he's he's directly connected to the crime database from you know from 2028 to 2011 has Everyone, you know, that's committed a crime within that span of time in his memory banks uh, and can, you know, and can identify them on site. Can identify, if he can't locate them, he can identify known associates and track them down. And his brain is neurally connected to all of the CCTV cameras across the city so that he can, he can locate anyone he's looking for on site and get GPS coordinates to them. Yeah, this was stuff they just didn't think about or probably couldn't think about in 87. Exactly. That, that's what I mean when earlier when I said, you know, we we live in a cyberpunk society now. Like these were mm. things people were only barely imagining then. I, I will say what led to that was one of the stupidest scenes in the movie. Mm. And it's before Robocop's going to be introduced to the public. So Gary Oldman, scientist, decides to upload all of the databases into Robocop a couple of minutes beforehand. 
he has no idea how it's going to affect him. Yeah. So, so of course it makes RoboCop act psychotic and like, oh, we got to turn off his free will functions now. Yeah. I, I just feel like that it was just really dumb, and they did it just so there'd be a scene where he walks by his family right there. It, uh, more like just plot conveniences for me. But it did oh. lead to a pretty funny scene <laughs> where he picks out like just some random dude in the crowd using this new tech of facial recognition. He finds out he's like a rapist and murderer. Yeah. And, Everyone's expecting him to give a speech, and he immediately just you know tases a guy in the crowd. Yeah. Which, by the way, it should be mentioned that his gun seems to have multiple functions now. There's the kill gun, and there's the uh, gun that's strictly for pacification and tasing. Yeah. Well, when I first read about this remake, people were saying in the script that he just gets the taser. I was going, well, that's kind of lame. But, nope, he has his he, Uzi and taser gun. Yeah, some people very, very clearly die. <laughs> yeah. There's no bones about that. And, you know, and, and it's funny, we kind of have the... Uh, we kind of have the um, Omnicore marketing team watching him as he takes out some of the crooks. And they just, you know, they're looking at it going, totally justified. That guy had a grenade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's okay that he killed that guy. Yeah, and because RoboCop here is more of the sleeker, like, he's like a Ferrari, where old school RoboCop is like a Tiger Panzer tank. He's just, this one is just, he's maneuverable, and I, I didn't get the feeling he was as durable. Because yeah. he really takes damage. Mm-hmm. Like, you see, like, his components pop open a lot when he takes uh, bullet hits. Or, any, as they said, anything like 50 cal and up will go right through him. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and it should also be noted that uh, the visor that RoboCop wears is not a permanent part of it. Like, even less than the original movie is, is a uh, part of the costume that comes on and off frequently. Yeah. This movie just, uh, well... For the original, it was like meant to be like a, an eventual reveal to a big emotional moment. Mm-hmm. This movie had other ways to go about earning those emotions. And I think that Iron Man was kind of influential here because he has like this visor that just kind of makes this metallic tink. Well, I think we're also, we also live in an age, too, where um, a lot of actors sign up for these big budget superhero-ish movies. But because they want their face shown... Uh, they most of them refuse to wear masks for most of the runtime, which, you know, in the case of something like Spider-Man or Batman can be frustrating when they're revealing their identity to everyone they ever meet. In every single movie. <laughs> All these action scenes, and uh, I think the Spider-Man movies are the biggest offender. Because think? that, I mean, that's a big part of why every villain has to die. You can't leave Doc Octopus alive if he knows who Peter Parker is. Mm-hmm. Well, if you read Superior Spider-Man, <laughs> which uh, we hey, I recommend. I, re- I rec- I'm reading it right now. A friend of ours uh, lent it to me, so I'm catching up on my Dan Slot Spider-Man. And he's done excellent work. I I say that to the haters, and I'll say that to the haters of this movie too. It's yeah. pretty good so far, guys. Yeah, um, this is a movie definitely worth watching. Yeah, um, but uh, like we said with the villains, with Michael Keaton. I didn't get the feeling that he was like this really evil guy that needed to go down. And like the last 10 minutes of the movie, he suddenly transforms into like this really sadistic dude, like pointing a gun at Murphy's family and everything. Well, to to extend this, you know, the the Spider-Man reference there, I kind of feel like he's Steve Jobs by way of Norman Osborn. Okay, that's an interesting way to put it. There's a, you know, because there's that little bit of vindictiveness that's like he's... 
I don't know. I, I don't really feel like he's so much. I mean, of course, he's he's obsessed with profit margins. I mean, there's there's no corporate villain that's ever going to exist that doesn't have that aspect to them. Yeah. But uh, I mean, yeah, it's made pretty clear. You know, after after Murphy uh, has caught on to all the things going on, he's he's connected the man who attempted to murder him by you know to to these corrupt cops that he's always suspected by lifting prints. Uh, from guns that disappeared from the evidence room, mm-hmm. and, it, and he, I, I actually really enjoyed that scene of him going to the police station. <laughs> that was pretty good, actually. And confronting these cops in the middle of a workday. Yeah, and tasing them. He she outright shoots that one in the shoulder. That's true. <laughs> I don't think he kills him. Yeah, and then he no, finds no. out there's another cop that's also uh, on the take. Yeah, a, a cop that's much higher up the chain. Yeah. And, you know, and Michael Keaton decides, hey, that's even better for our narrative. Because, you know, if we say that these human cop, these fully human cops can't be trusted, then mm. then the uh, Congress who is about to vote on the uh, decision about whether or not robots should be used for law enforcement. Yeah, well, he's got like the Dick Jones vibe and that from the original. It's like, who cares if it works? Like. The RoboCop program was just to butter up the American public to the idea of a mechanized a mechanized police force, which which is uh, a part of the narrative of the original that I don't think they they you know went through with all the way. Uh, they briefly just touch upon it where he's like, what Ed Two Hundred Nine meant was like there'd be all these great military contracts, there'd be spare parts for fifty years. Just all these ways to just make you know massive product uh, profits. But, but those, but those would have you know presumably been other like the the problems of other countries. Like that's what we would have deployed to the Middle East or something, as as happened in this movie. Whereas this movie is very much like this will become a global situation. Yeah, when RoboCop the original was made, the Soviet Union was still in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Like just to put that into perspective, now we're in Afghanistan and there's no more Soviet Union. Right. Um, and this real uh, captures that mindset. And even, you know, like our version of a corporate bad guy isn't as much the boardroom of guys in suits as it is like the billionaire casual, casually dressed CEO. Not more, more than that, the billionaire casually dressed CEO that can manipulate world governments. Yeah, he's got uh, political clout. Yes. Like he can uh, enforce his will upon legislation. And that's what it's really all about for him. And, a, and it's a big part of what, you know, our world looks like right now. I mean, this, I, I, I look at what Jose Padilla is giving us. And I think, I think, you know, he and the screenwriters have done a pretty good job of modernizing, you know, our global concerns. I mean, we're very concerned about living in a, a constantly surveilled police state. We're concerned about corporations uh, having, you know, government influence. Yeah. You know, these are these are factors of our modern life, and I think that uh, I think they do a pretty good job as far as you know satirizing what we're going through as much as you know as was before. I mean, we don't have the the silly commercials anymore, but we have Samuel L. Jackson's character delivering a pretty pitch perfect take on you know modern day news pundits and talking head news shows. Yeah, I liked the initial scene of the Novak element, but I felt like his sequences late on and on kind of went went on a little too long for my taste. I think that's you know, but I think that's going to happen when you when you cast Sam Jackson. That's true. Know? He does he does go into severe Sam Jackson mode late in the movie, which everybody in the theater was very happy to see. Yeah, I 
I didn't feel that one as much, but I, you know, I, I, for, I, I did chuckle, for example, when um, the when he has as a counterpoint to Michael Keaton's character, he brings on a congressman via live via hologram. Oh yeah. Uh, Th- yeah. That disagrees with robot legislation. Yeah, he's in the and no the, spin zone. Yeah, and once the guy starts saying things Jackson doesn't want to hear, he just cuts him off and sends the hologram away, acting like it was a balanced uh, presentation. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a, I thought that was pretty clever. That was pretty funny. Yeah. Um. All right. To to bring back, you know, concerns about hey, what did they bring over? You know, we get a we get a, a variation of the I'd buy that for a dollar. Mm-hmm. And uh, we at the very end, you know, we get a dead or alive. You're coming with me. Although, you know, get let's talk. Let's just all right. I'm going to bring up a Stanley Kubrick reference here, <laughs> which Please. is always, which is always a troubling thing when you're talking about RoboCop, I guess. Yeah. But uh, you know, when when Stanley Kubrick adapted Stephen King's The Shining, it said that Kubrick deliberately changed or reversed anything that uh, King put into place. Um, so if King said it was a red car in the movie, it's a yellow car. Uh, if King said that this, if King said the room was this number in the movie, it's going to be a different number. Like there was all these, th- you know, all these things that frustrated King that, uh, Kubrick seemed to do deliberately. I don't think that, uh, the goal of Mr. Padilla is to frustrate people, but for example, in this movie, uh, when, you know, we talked about the right hand being the only remaining organic piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also when the line dead or alive, you're coming with me, uh, RoboCop is referring to himself in this movie because they're telling him he'll die if he yeah. if he keeps attempting. He's like, well, dead or alive, you're coming with me. Like, he means I'll die this time. Yeah, there's a... They kind of have something like Directive 4, and it's like a... What is it? Like a red bracelet? Yes. Certain which, OCP employees wear. Which they bring up at the very beginning of the movie in the opening sequence, and we don't see again till the end. Uh, Jackie Earl Haley has it. Does he have it during the exercise scene? No, he doesn't, because Robocop no. tases him. See, well, you know, but I, I think the, the, the... This is a major spoiler, so, you know. We, but we warned you earlier. Um, during that training sequence with Jackie Earl Haley, they establish that when Robocop is wearing the visor, uh, they have they have rewired his brain in such a way that the visor uh, makes him act more machine-like. So the the suit itself, the or you know cyborg body itself, is reacting and tricking uh, Murphy's brain into thinking that he's the one firing off the weaponry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, he's the one making the decisions and pulling the trigger because they found that as a human, his reaction time was too slow. Um, and I think that was all done to foreshadow the idea that you know, because at the very end, his his visor is destroyed, it's damaged. That, that that had to have all been done just to foreshadow at the very end that he's able to uh, overcome the red bracelets. Yeah. Because he's no longer wearing the visor at the end. That's when he could... Because they established, oh, when he's not wearing the visor, he can think like a human being. Yeah, it's like... Uh, it's the loophole, like, Dick, you're fired! Yeah. And and since no one in this movie is, uh, you know, above Michael Keaton, they can't have something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did kind of rag on the action scenes a little, but I do like how Robocop initially deals with the Ed 209 units and that he just stands underneath it and it yes. can't shoot him. <laughs> they're not designed to deal with that. Yeah. Or, you know, or like they're not designed to, uh, to shoot at what they perceive as civilians. Or, so uh, yeah, anyone unarmed. Yeah. 
Yeah, his partner throws himself in front of him for a second and it can't fire. But I also like that, you know, I actually really enjoyed that whole fighting multiple Ed 209 sequence. It was the, probably the best action scene in the whole movie and, you know, saved for the end wisely. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's It didn't knock my socks off or anything, but it was a step up from the muzzle flash fight. I didn't really like... <laughs> I feel like all of the action in this movie was serviceable. Um, it doesn't, you know, it, it like those weren't necessarily the elements that thrilled me, which is a weird, weird thing to say when you watch a RoboCop movie. Yeah. Um, but I think they were all serviceable to move us from point A to point B. Yeah, I, I do like that they weren't there just to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a purpose. You know, they moved the story along. Yeah. I actually enjoyed the sequences of RoboCop doing police work more than I did. I did too, like because now it he's not just, you know, a walking tank of death, he's now super detective. Yeah. Detecting is instantaneous for him, practically. I mean we even we even get a revision of the revisiting the house scene, but he only goes into his driveway and uses the CCTVs to reconstruct a hologram of his own uh, car bombing. Yeah. I was wondering if they had a better idea for the car bomb because it was clearly CG and the the explosion doesn't impact the house itself. I don't know. It, yeah. it looked that was the the effects in this movie are quite strong, but that one looked a little hokey to me. If I'm being honest, I thought he was gonna go back and see who set the bomb in his car. Yeah. Well yeah he could have done that. But um he did. My favorite bit of police work is where he pulls, like, uh, one of his criminal informants out of a window. He's like, yes. I got a wife and kids! And then his database immediately tells him, unmarried, no children. Yeah, divorced, no children. Yeah. <laughs> Your wife left you for a domestic abuse charge ten years ago, and you have no children. But I do. <laughs> <laughs> I did like that a lot. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was pretty great. Uh, you know, and I don't know, it just establishes that this RoboCop is playing with a full deck. Like he's, you know, he is a detective first and a cyborg second. Mm-hmm. Although I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this complaint about the acting choices of Joel Kinnaman, um, <laughs> who plays RoboCop in this movie, uh, and probably my least favorite line in this movie, where after he's wearing the black suit, his partner. Uh, Michael K. Williams makes the joke, at least I know you're the right color this time. Yeah. Because, you know, and I'm going to bring up Paul Walker, rest in peace. Uh, but Paul Walker in the Fast and the Furious movies uh, tends to slip in and out of this very strong black scent. Yes. Uh, I, I thought he was channeling Eminem or something. Joel Kinnaman does this a lot, too. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, okay, that's just the acting choice. That, you know, Maybe he's just trying to sell me on the fact that he's a tough-talking street cop. But he doesn't talk that way around his family. He only does it when he's around <laughs> Michael K. Williams. He's just got to fit in, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I know. It seems inauthentic. It, like He's like the white guy trying to be cool. <laughs> like when he's, There's that scene where he's undercover, and his black scent voice is really, really... Uh, prevalent. Which, you know, I thought, okay, you know, he's just trying to sell them on the fact that he's not a cop. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, oh, I'm just talking like he's yeah. not a cop. But, but then he talks like that in the car with his partner, and they, ha- they have a strong way of... <laughs> well, another thing that made me laugh was when he- whenever he's talking to his partner in the car, he talks in plot, uh, which, <laughs> which, you know, was fine when he's explaining what happened to his chief, but, but he's 
doing this he's doing the same thing when he's talking in the car with his partner and i know that's just you know like again that's serviceable writing to key in the audience members that aren't paying attention like we gotta do this because he's that guy but (laughs) but it, it felt a little silly as did um RoboCop's final evidence that connected the corrupt cops to the crime lord that tried to have him killed, mm-hmm. which was that he he pulls what I we you know what I can only call a CSI, the TV show science, where all you have to do is pull a CCTV image, enhance it to the beyond all reason. So you can see you can see people through a window via the reflection they made on a car, <laughs> and if you enhance that reflection, you can also hear everything they said. Uh, <laughs> like there, I accept all this within reason, but that that's the same unreasonable thing I've come to expect from uh, CBS crime shows. Yeah, well, uh, I wonder, maybe we should look up some of the writers and see what their credits are. There are a few uncredited writers on this one, too. Yeah, the, the script went through a lot of rewrites. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the there was a script that was passed around online like a year or two ago. It had lines like, uh, they were make, clearly making fun of the original, like, they show their idea of the original RoboCop suit, and they go, that looks like an effing 80s toy. <laughs> and RoboCop was going to go through several different bodies, not just go through the silver and black, but he's, and he could, like, transform into, like, a regular-looking guy. It, <laughs> it was just all these really bad ideas. I, I well, I... Like, I did laugh at that one sequence where um, the marketing guy, played by Jay Baruchel, is showing uh, sellers the different ideas they have. Like, oh, this is combat mode, and 88% of prisoners said they'd be scared of him. And guess what? He transforms into social mode, and the kids love him. Oh, there you go. The social mode had uh, police siren lights (laughs) on his shoulders. The kids (laughs) love it. I thought that was really funny. But, of course, that's apparently what inspired us to go, just put him in black. Yeah. Make him more tactical. Like I really, really like Michael Keaton in this movie. Yes. I like Michael Keaton in everything. And I, I really, I think you saying that he is Steve Jobs is dead on. Like, he's he's talking about RoboCop as if he's the design of the next iPad. Yeah. He dresses like him relatively, you know, mm-hmm. blue jeans. Seems, seems mostly benevolent. Yeah. Yeah. But he, except that you know, except that he's willing to uh, to let Murphy die, um, if if that strengthens uh, his political grip, because a dead hero is better than a living one. Mm-hmm. They're gonna get that uh, public sentiment that they so need. Yes. You know, and uh, and unlike the original, uh, where. It's made pretty clear that by uh, RoboCop 2, his wife and child just find him creepy and don't want him stalking them anymore. We're, you know, we kind of end on the idea that RoboCop and his family are going to be okay. Yeah, um, I kind of like that, uh, but I liked it in the context of this movie, and I like the context of the original, that his family are just... Yeah, I'm speaking of just the first movie, that his family is just now ghosts to him. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't have any idea that they were going to do the sequel where he tries to visit his wife and she finds him incredibly creepy. Yeah, again, I feel like that's another subversion. Yeah, it's, it's a good here. subversion. Yeah, I it, it completely works for me. Although I, I think like every other scene, Abby Cornish, who plays his wife, is always in tears. Yes. 
maybe yeah. more than every other scene. Like she, or she's just about to start crying. I'm like, okay, we get it. Although I, I don't feel like it's entirely unjustified given the narrative arc she's going through. This is very true. They're, they, it's always she's always captured at her really really emotional moments, but and you know, but it's a traumatic experience for everyone involved. Especially when he's acting more and more robotic because they're suppressing his human will. Yeah. I like it's... it where he goes to visit his son. Mm-hmm. He's like, you want to, you know, feel it, feel the suit, feel the body, you know. Uh, I had the horrible feeling they were going to have like a Herman Munster moment where he's going to show his son how to play baseball and he throws like a baseball through a car. <laughs> it's like, whoops, son. <laughs> Just something really stupid like that. And thankfully that didn't happen. <laughs> Oh, I also wanted to complain about this. Um, the the sex scene he almost has with his wife near the beginning of the movie is so awkward. Yeah. Uh, there's no music or anything. I mean, he, he doesn't go through with it because he gets car-bombed, like, immediately after. Well, here's, uh, he, yeah, here's the car alarm that draws him outside. Yeah, but, uh, but it just felt so weird. And I knew it was just there to remind us that RoboCop once was all man. <laughs> You know, but, but yeah. For the, for the case of this movie, it doesn't. It didn't. It just felt weird. Like I don't know. It wasn't shot well enough to make me feel that, and it felt unnecessary. It felt very forced. Yeah. Because there was already plenty of scenes of him kissing his wife and child. Like I feel like he kissed that kid like eight times the first time he walked in the room. He loves the boy. They love the Red the Wings. Yeah. They... I actually that that Red Wings touch made me believe this movie was in Detroit. Yeah. In the original, Clarence Bodiger just says the Tigers are playing tonight. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, in this movie, there's several references to the wet Red Wings. Yeah, like his son saved all the Red Wings games since the several months his dad's been uh, out of commission. And he's got that big sticker on his closet. Yeah. And the welcome home sign has like the Stanley Cup drawn on it. Yeah. And a hockey goal. Hockey is what this father and son share. Like that's their bonding thing. That's what every father and son should share, <laughs> in my experience. Um, and I also want to say I, I really enjoy, because uh, I mentioned earlier how much I enjoyed the Gary Oldman character, but I, I, I really enjoy his character from beginning to end. I I like that he is this scientist that's very driven by his research and sometimes has to compromise his values mm-hmm. uh, in accordance with the, you know, accords with the demands of... Uh, Michael Keaton, yeah. but isn't willing to complete like there. But he has a line that he draws, mm-hmm. you know, like like he won't he won't. He even says, as a doctor, you know, it'd be very hard for me to cut you off of your life support. Like I couldn't bring myself to do that. And you know that opening scene with him at his lab really justifies really sells that. It. Yeah, it really sells it. Hmm. Well, so any other, any other thoughts about this movie? No. Um, to tell you the truth, I wouldn't mind seeing another one. Yeah. I could, you know, I don't like Joel Kinnaman as much as Peter Weller. No, I, I, yeah, I think he's, he's one of the weaker elements of this movie. Yeah, um, I like a lot of the design elements. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to leave another spoiler. He does not keep his black suit for the rest of the movie. Nope. Um, I really like that. And he's going, okay, he'll look pretty cool in, in a sequel. I, I actually like, too, in the, uh, the end movie version. Yeah, uh, that he that that has that etching of a police badge drawn on the chest. Yeah, in the original, uh, it's like the OCP logo, and now it's the police badge. Yeah, I like that touch too. And 
Well, yeah, I would like to see another one of these. And, you know, it'd have to have Padilla back at it. And if you could get an R-rated movie out of it, that'd be pretty cool. But it wouldn't be completely necessary now that this movie has established its own tone. Yeah. So it, I, it's a it's a proper reboot. And I think it's probably one of the best reboots since the Star Trek 09. I am going to... Uh... I'm going to say something controversial. Dun, dun. I'm going to remove my nostalgia inhibitor here. Yeah. Um, and say that... And don't get me wrong. I, I love the original movie. Hmm. I think there's a lot the original does well. But I would say that the, uh, the narrative arc of this left me a little more satisfied. Um, I'm not saying this is a better film. It's, but it's certainly better than 2 and 3. There is no contest. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody that would say otherwise is being contrary or wearing those rose-colored glasses a little too tightly. They've got that. They've got that rose-colored visor on. That's you know making the decisions for them. Um, it, but, this one has a meteor script, but I do not get the same kind of satisfaction out of Murphy going, "What's your name, son?" He just says Murphy at the end. There's nothing close to that in this one. I just don't get that same emotional pull. Oh no, I'm not saying it's. A, I'm not saying this one's a better movie. Because there's a lot I like about the first, you know, about the original movie. We wouldn't even be sitting here doing a RoboCop retrospective if were that not the case. Yeah. Uh, like, for example, I don't feel like there's any villain as strong as Clarence Boddicker. I don't feel like there's any action scenes that really hit the same high notes that the Ed 209, you know, blowing a guy away, or or the uh, or Murphy's Murphy's unfortunate uh, accident by multiple guns, or, or even like the, the cocaine shootout from the original. They they did something kind of like that here, but it was very brief, and it had that grenade gag that was kind of funny. I don't get any scene that makes me laugh as hard as Boddicker being thrown through separate windows while Miranda rights are being read to him. Yeah, no toxic waste, man. Nothing like that. It's just a different movie. And... But as as like an example of transhumanist cyberpunk narrative, I'm a, I, I enjoy the story of this one just a little more. Okay, I mean, that's fair. Um... I can't argue that this one does have a slightly meatier script. It's a longer movie, too. Oh, yeah. So they were able to do that. Almost a little too long, although I don't really know what you would have taken out. I think you could have trimmed up the Pat Novak scenes a little more, because I feel like those those went on way too long. I I really feel like that that went on as long as it did, though, because probably of the prohibitive cost of putting Sam Jackson in a movie anymore. (laughs) Well, he's not like Tom Cruise, though. He can't be, like... Oh, he, I mean, but man, he, like this is a guy who wouldn't be in a Marvel movie unless they they he made them sign like a multi-picture deal. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Like they had to have him for like nine films. That's why he cameos in all of them. But he's in that really awful-looking kite movie. That's an adaptation of the anime movie. That can't possibly have a big budget. I've seen the trailer. It looks horrible. I don't know. Maybe, I I feel I feel like Sam Jackson is a guy that prices himself depending on what he's gonna be in. Yeah. So. But but I think I think if he knows the producer has money, that's a guy that's gonna cost you. Right. And I mean and, and full of full of a you know and a movie full of guys that are gonna cost you. I mean this is a great cast largely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really, the only weak link is Joel Kinnaman, and I didn't hate the guy in the role. He's just no. I just don't like him as much as I do Peter Weller. Yeah. Peter Weller had a bit of he had an air of sympathy about him. And he, much, he captured with his eyes, not just with his, you know, his kind of robotic voice that he has that we talked about. It's kind of funny. But he has more subtlety to it and you care about him more. 
and uh, you know, he had a much stranger face. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a weird. He's kind of an odd-looking man. Yeah, unique-looking. Yeah, Joel Kinnaman's like, you know, the handsome Swedish guy. Joel Kinnaman is he the? He's the guy from The Killing, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how most American audiences know him. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think I think that sort of black-scented uh, street cop thing is pulled directly from his portrayal on The Killing, mm-hmm. where he is where he is that character twenty four seven. Yeah, I've never watched The Killing, but I do know he's on that one. Well, uh, you have any? I don't really have much add, much else to add to it. No, I I'm just gonna say I was I went into this movie with very low expectations and came out pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Um, I was, I was feeling kind of harsh on it when I initially walked out and then I sat around and I thought about it. I was like, you know what? This was actually pretty good. You know, it was a pretty solid movie and it was a lot better than the Drek from last summer, barring World's End. Mm-hmm. So it is a, yeah, I would actually like to watch it again. Or Pacific Rim. I liked it better than Pacific Rim. Ah, see, that's, again, this is the battle between you and I of giant robots versus people-sized robots. Well, Pacific Rim had one really good action scene that was better than anything else in RoboCop. And that was that Hong Kong fight. I will say I, that. I, I would put Pacific Rim story... I, I just went and praised the story of this. I'd, I'd say Pacific Rim had the superior story. Again, you know, you and I are going to forever debate giant, you know, mecha versus cyborgs. I'm fine with that. Fine. <laughs> I'm fine with See that. See in the Thunderdome there, Casey. Uh, I also want to say real quick, I saw the Lego movie. Oh, yeah, as did I. And uh, really good. Uh, it, I When I first heard there was going to be a Lego movie, I thought it was going to be some piece of garbage, a toy tie-in movie. The toy tie-in is there because it's about a toy. However, mm-hmm. it's one of the funniest movies you'll see uh, that I've seen in the theater in a long time. And I was, I was completely wowed by the... Uh, the technology it used in the animation, even the even even the explosions, uh, you know, uh, appear as square bricks. I love the humor. It has leg like humor of just the playing with the Legos, and then the meta humor involved. And there's some really really clever stuff in this movie. Some clever twists towards the end too. There's twists in a Lego movie for children. I didn't think that would be. That's a twist all into itself, and I just spoiled it. But there's twists. It's cool. And encouragement for adults to let kids play with their toys. If you have the old Lego set, break it out. And you don't always have to follow the instructions. That's right. You know, yeah, I, uh, we, we could probably do a separate episode about that movie at some point. <laughs> yeah, I, I would love to talk a Lego movie because there's a lot of action in it. And probably one of the best portrayals of Batman since uh, the Brave and the Bold cartoon. I think I thought uh, Will Arnett as Batman and the way that he was animated was a home run. It was hilarious. I loved it. As one character says, Batman is the worst person I've ever met. <laughs> I'll also be, uh, you know, if, since we, this, we've reached the plug portion of this episode, I will be writing a full review of um, the Lego movie to incorporate into my Gundam blog, uh, the Manovsky articles of all things. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Yeah, I'm reading the Gundam Origins manga right now. Having a lot of fun with that. <laughs> fantastic yeah so maybe we'll cover gundam on the show actually so casey can you can hear him audibly geek out instead of reading it on the blog or ghost in the show well superior series please Casey. cyborgs versus mecha 
the war continues. But that's so tune in next week when. <laughs> yeah, well, officially we will be doing Jacob's Ladder. Yes, uh, we're finally coming out of the other end of this RoboCopathon. Um, I'll be glad to put some police tape around this franchise and not have to revisit it for a good long while. Uh, because yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go into um, the post traumatic stress disorder psychological horror movie Jacob's Ladder. Yeah, can't wait. I've never seen it. Oh, it's uh, a it's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. All right, kids. Um. Oh yeah. Uh, recommendations. I would personally, you know, months down the line, I could watch this RoboCop remake again. You'd probably enjoy it. Um. I recommend you go out and see it. You know. Yeah. If you're even if you are a huge fan of the original, I, Casey and I are fans of the original, so mm-hmm. check it out. Yeah, I can agree. I'd agree with that point blank. So it is not going to obliterate any anything really about the old one. Yeah, it's 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 watching this is not going to make it burst out of the screen and uh, take away all your copies of the old RoboCop. Yeah, it's not even going to like remove like. Oh well, they did that in a completely different way. Like this particular scene. No, well, those scenes aren't even there in the remake. It's just a different movie. Yeah. So it did as well as it could have, probably, to justify its existence. Yeah, it, it's it's not trying to replace the original in your heart at all. Yeah. So. So give it a chance. You can have two RoboCop movies on your shelf that you love. Possibly. Or at least like. At least like. Yeah. And go see the Lego Movie. And. uh... Go on Netflix and watch Jacob's Ladder before we talk about it next week. Yeah. In the meantime, friends, I'm Casey Mitchum. And I'm Burton Cody. Stay bloody, my friends. Why can't we use these machines here at home? Why is America so robophobic? We're going to put a man inside a machine. We'll play good cop, bad cop. Thank you for your cooperation. Bad cop, robocop.